morning. Let's find our seats and open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And let's pray. Father, how needful it is for us to be reminded we are so prone to forget the things that we should remember and to remember things that we ought to forget. And so help us this morning as we come to your word that we would see you, that we would see ourselves in the mirror of your word, and that we would be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to turn. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, as we began, Peter went through and um, he's setting the stage in the beginning part of this book. He talks much about diligence, about not being lazy, about how the Christian life is one that is very intentional. It is one that is very directed. It's very focused. And the reason that it is focused, the reason that it needs to be directed and focused is because we're prone to forget as the, as the hymn writer put it, we are prone to wander. And so he begins by holding out that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And this idea that God has granted to us, he has given to us, he has provided for us everything that we need in order to respond to the circumstances of life in a godly way. Now, that includes his written word, and it includes the Holy Spirit. We have both. And so, and one could argue that God has given us one another. Now, one another's, what, what, what is the purpose behind all of those one another statements in the New Testament? Pardon me? Unity. Unity? How so? Okay. So as you're doing all of these things with one another, that is a practical way in which you put another biblical principle into practice, right? We are to consider one another's needs ahead of our own, right? We're to be interested in, in, in one another, helping to stir and stimulate one another to love and to good works. Those one another's are how you functionally do that. And so as it is that you are going through and admonishing one another and forgiving one another and loving one another and praying for one another and forbearing with one another and all of those, I think there's what, 31 of them? There's, there's a bunch of them. And so as you are doing that, that is also a means by which the word is encouraged, it is further on stirred so that people would live in a godly fashion. And so he's, in the, in the first part of this book, he, he is very much about diligence. Be diligent. Don't be lazy. Be purposed. And when he gets to verse 10, 
Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, the idea there is not that you're not going to sin. The idea is that you're not going to fall in such a way that you are falling away. Remember that um, this, this list of things that he goes through, it, you know, you're, you're adding to your uh, faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And as you're increasing in these things, so in other words, the idea is, is that as you are paying mind to these things, again, you're taking the principles of God's word and under the influence of the spirit, you are putting these principles into practice in your life, then you are increasing in godliness and increasing in godliness, living a godly life, that is the key to avoiding apostasy. That's the key to avoiding falling under the influence of false teachers. It's the way of avoiding falling into error. And so in verse 12, Peter shifts. And now he's, he's getting down to a very personal aspect for him for this letter. And as you read this letter, you'll see that Peter uses different word choices he, he's thinking of different events in his own life. Peter's remembering. And he's going back and he is tying back into different events in his own life here to encourage these his sheep. Now, recall after Peter had denied Christ and in John chapter 21, he, they're out on the they're in a boat, they're on the lake, and he sees Jesus. And, oh, it's the Lord. Boom. He's in, and he's heading to shore. And he meets with Christ. And, Peter, and Jesus asks him those three questions, right? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What was Jesus' command to Peter each time? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter, your life is to be about my people. Your life is to be about my people. And he's doing that. His heart comes across. His heart for these people comes across in this letter. And as he is now coming to the end of his life, He's looking and he's trying to address what is going to what he perceives to be the greatest danger that they are going to face. And that danger is false teachers coming in. Because those false teachers are not coming in. They are not accidentally coming to error. It is intentional. They are intending to lead sheep astray. That has been a problem in that was a problem in Israel in the Old Testament. Shepherds who were supposed to be tending to the flock were instead fleecing the flock. And so when you go to Ezekiel, you'll find that you know, God does not take kindly to shepherds who take advantage of his sheep. And that was also an issue in the early church. It's an issue today. 
Is there a problem with false doctrine today? Do people fall, do people fall prey to different error that is taught today as truth? You could go through and you could create a whole laundry list of different things that have infiltrated the church. And, so, and in fact, there's always a new one coming along now, isn't there? And so, again, this is not a hypothetical issue. This is not a hypothetical situation. It's one that we need to be paying mind to as well. Now, someone has said that repetition is the mother of learning. Now, by the way, that's biblical. If you go through, um, one of your bullet points here, reminding is a function of the Holy Spirit. What is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does? He brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus said. You'll find that in John 14, 26. Reminding is a function of a faithful pastor. And so when you... Um, As, as, as we preach through God's word, as we teach through God's word here, how often are you running into something that's new? It had better be never. God's word is eternal. God's word is already written. Now, there may be something in there that is new to me or new to you, but it's not new. And in fact, when someone speaks up and says, you know what, I have a new word from the Lord, time to run. Time to just turn around and walk away. Because again, what is the danger? What is the danger of someone's vision? or someone's experience. Accuracy, leading people astray. Yeah, is it objective or subjective? How do you verify it? You can't. In fact, uh, today we're gonna get into uh, an event that was very prominent in Peter's life, the transfiguration of Christ. Interesting that it's recorded three times. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not one of those authors was present when it occurred. Who was there? Peter, James, and John. Now, how do you verify what Peter says about what happened? I'm sorry? Okay, you can ask James and John, which, by the way, is why probably there were three people there so that in the mouths of two or three witnesses, in fact, can be established, right? Two of those guys are still alive at the time this book is written. James is already in heaven by this point. So let's, let's begin in verse 12. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things 
even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so Peter is writing these things down so that people will be able to have them and people will be able to continue to be challenged by them, admonished by them, encouraged by them after his death. And again, his death is imminent. Now, did Peter have an idea of when and how he was going to die? Okay, I see some questioning looks, so let's go find out. F keep your finger in Peter. We'll be back shortly. And flip over to John chapter 21. Peter and Jesus have been talking. Jesus has been doing most of the talking. Peter's been restored. 21.18, truly, truly, I say to you, so Peter, you can count on this, you can take it to the bank. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So, is there an indication there as to time? He's old, when he's, gonna, when he's old. So, uh, it was interesting in some of the commentaries that I was looking at this week, one mentioned, that's one reason why Peter could sleep when he was in jail not too long after, the, after Pentecost. Was he old at that point? No. So, I'm not going to die. So I think I'll have a nap. But now here we are, 30-something years down the road, 
most of us in here know what it's like to be 30-something years down the road. It's not quite as easy. Some things aren't quite as easy as they used to be. Now are they? Who practiced crucifixion? Romans did. And here he is. He's, he's aging now. And he's coming to the end of the line. So, let's get these things written down. Let's get these people encouraged. Let's warn them of the dangers that are facing them so that he may be a faithful pastor in tending and feeding. And so here he comes. I need to be diligent also, and I need to always be ready to remind you of these things. Remind here is three times in these verses. And why? There's an urgency to it. He's coming to the end. And there's a moral aspect to it. It's right. It's needful. Needful for them. Needful for him to go through and be faithful. Now here's where Peter, in his word choices, you can tell that he is remembering himself. He's thinking back over some of the events in his life. So for instance, this idea of laying aside my earthly dwelling, the word literally is tent. Now, keep your finger, if you're back in Peter, good, leave it there, and let's go over to the book of Luke, chapter 9, because there is an event here that I think actually is, is foremost in Peter's mind here as he's writing. Again, the transfiguration is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke has a couple of details that no one else has. All three accounts in the verse prior to talking about the transfiguration have this verse. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking to his disciples there. Some of you are going to see the kingdom. And the very next verse, Luke says some eight days, Matthew and Mark say it's six. Some eight days after these sayings, Peter, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That is a detail that's only in Luke. Matthew and Mark don't talk about the content of the discussion between Christ and Moses and Elijah. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Where's Peter? He's with the rest of the disciples doing what? Sawing logs over here, right? 
They'd been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. You've got to count on Peter for being able to come up with something. Let us make three tabernacles, three tents. It's the same word. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. If you go back to Matthew, this is another one of those like the last words on the cross, the words that were posted up on the cross. Each of the Gospels has got a piece. And if you go back to Matthew, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now Peter is going to remember part of that and he's going to relate that here in his book. So the idea here Jesus, he wants to build tabernacles. He wants to build tents. He wants to build a temporary abode for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah. He has his own earthly dwelling, his own tent. Notice that when they were speaking of, what were they talking about? What were Moses and Elijah talking about with Jesus? Okay, his departure from Jerusalem, does anybody have something besides a new American standard? Nobody does? Okay, New King James, what, is they, what does that say there? <laughs> I believe it's 931. Of his, okay, of his decease. Now, what is that a kind way of saying? His death. Now, it's not the normal word for death. In fact, it's a very interesting term. Anne-Marie, do you have a question? Okay, so we have some that say death, and we have some that say departure. Do you want to take a guess at what the word is? The Greek word is exodus. He's talking about Jesus's exodus. And so Jesus is leaving one place to go to another. And what is he accomplishing in the meantime? He's accomplishing redemption and salvation for all, right? And so that word exodus is the same word that Peter uses to talk about his own departure. Peter doesn't look at it like this is the end of the line. This is my 
exodus. I am being delivered from this life into the promised land, the life that is to come. And so he's got all of these different things. He wants to arouse them. He wants to wake them from sleep. That's the idea. We're back in 1 Peter 1. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up. By way of reminder, this idea of stirring up is to arouse, to awaken fully. He's concerned about them being what? He's concerned about them being asleep when they need to be awake. And again, does Peter know something about that? Yeah, he does. He's been sleeping when he should have been awake. Why was it that he needed to be awake in the Garden of Gethsemane? To pray for what? Pray that you would not fall into temptation. When's Peter going to deny Jesus? After he's, after he's awake, right? Peter knows what it is. And so he wants to make sure that these don't fall into some of the same pitfalls that he has. And so again, there's all kinds of things here going through his mind. You know what? Peter's not concerned with people remembering him. What is he concerned about? You remember the truth. You need to remember the truth. You need to focus on that. And so, what to focus on? Verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a second. Cleverly devised is that something that's accidental or is that something that's intentional? Well, that's intentional. And what are they that are being intentionally derived? Tales. The word is from what we get the word myth. So, what's a myth? A myth, what's a myth? It's a story. It's a made-up story that is purported as what? Fact, truth. Now again, would Peter's audience be familiar with myths? Why would they be so familiar, Becca? Okay, so the Romans, they've got all kinds of mythology and, and they came out of the Greek and the Greeks had all of their mythology, right? They're, they're plenty familiar with mythology. And you know how that arose, right? We've talked about this before. We talked about this back in uh, the pastorals. How is it that these myths came about? Well, if you're Greek, you got some Greek guys probably sitting around a campfire sipping some ouzo, coming up and saying, hey, How's about we have this deity, get it on with this deity, and they have these kids, 
and they go through and they do all of these stuff. It's all made up. Somebody sat around and came up with that. Now, I don't know how I ended up on, on the, a rabbit trail that I ended up on this week. Oh, you have no... Oh, okay, all right. So, well, no, no, no. I, I want to I go here for a second because it's, it's appropriate. There's a particular fella back in the 30s um, who was a science fiction writer. He wrote short stories for science fiction magazines. That was his job. And he didn't pay very well, right? He gets a penny a word. He's not making very much money. And so, somehow, it's, it's disputed as to whether or not he came up with this idea or somebody came up with it for him. Look, if you want to make money, you need to start your own religion. So he did. He had already been dabbling with some other things. So he took those and plugged them into and made it into a religion. His name was L. Ron Hubbard. The religion is Scientology. He made it up. And if you ever read the stuff that he comes up with, I don't know what he was smoking, but it wasn't regular tobacco. Some of the things that he's come up with are just, how do you even think of that? Well, he was a science fiction writer. He made it up. Okay, the Book of Mormon. In fact, any of the books that, that, that come in that talk about being supplemental to the Bible, you know what, the Bible's just not enough. That's why you need um, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. If you ever go to a, uh, one of those churches, uh, they will have a reading from the Bible. It is a very narrow reading. Mary Baker Eddy was not into context. All right? The Bible says all kinds of things. You know, the Bible says twice, there's no God. That is a direct quote. What's the phrase immediately before that statement? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And so there's all kinds of things that you can make the Bible say if you take it out of its context. Gunner. Okay, so uh, Gunners made the comment that uh, over in China, the, their their leader over there is coming up with his own little ver his own version of Mao's little red book. The warning here is stay away from the cleverly devised tales. How do you recognize a cleverly devised tale? 
by knowing the truth exactly. You, you employ the same principle that they do with a banker, a bank teller. Do they train bank tellers all about forgeries? No. How do they do it? Lots of real money so that you come to recognize by appearance, by feel, what real money is. And so that when a, well, all of a sudden when some funny money comes through, it stands out, you know, very easily. Andrew. Okay, so the comment is, is that the Bible Answer Man used to use this example all the time, and now he has gone astray. And so again, look, let him who stands, what? Take heed, lest he fall. And so this is one of these things again. These are warnings. These aren't warnings for everybody else. These are warnings for you and for me. Because we are just as susceptible. And so we need to be awake and we need to know the truth so that it is that we'll be able to recognize error. So Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses to the transfiguration. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, remember we read this account. When did God speak from heaven? After Peter said, ah, all right, I'm being thrown into a situation here. Peter, made, Peter would have made a great fireman, all right? He would have made a great fireman. We've got a fireman here in the back here, and he'll, know, he'll, he'll be able to tell you this. Firemen are thrown into chaos, and they're expected to bring order. And so when you're a fireman, you walk in, you assess the situation. All right, what are we going to do here? How are we going to deal with this situation? That's Peter. And Peter, Jeff. Oh, he likes talking? Well, that too. I do still miss the firehouse. I do miss that. Peter is thrown into the situation where he's, he's walked up the mountain. He was awake for that part. And now he's been sleeping. And when he wakes up, Jesus is glowing like the daylight and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. Now how they recognized Moses and Elijah I don't know. They'd never seen him. Yeah, maybe they had the little name tag. Hi, my name is. But all of a sudden he wakes up and now here's Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah are representing what? They represent Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, right? So remember, on the law and the prophets is what the scripture hangs, right? And so he wakes up, and they're about to leave. And so Peter, he's just trying to think, I, 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 I need to build you an apartment. 
How about let's build? And again, when you think about that, would that be something that Peter would be familiar with? Should Peter be familiar with that? Well, come on, that ought to be an easy one. Yes, Peter ought to be real, 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 real familiar with that because once a year, what do all the children, what are all the children of Israel supposed to do? You have the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They're supposed to go out and get branches and come over and build these things so that it reminds them of God's deliverance and his provision for them while they're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And their shoes never wear out. And they've got food delivered to them every morning. Two and a half million people are eating every day in the middle of a desert. And so his idea is, hey, look, we do this anyway once a year. So let's build some tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And he thinks it's a great idea. God thinks differently. Peter you need to stop talking and you need to listen. So, God is very nicely telling Peter, shut up, shut your mouth, open your ears. He needs to pay attention to what Jesus is telling him rather than his own ideas. And so again, he's carrying that through here. Now, by the way, so let's look at this again. He hears this voice from the majestic glory, which is another way of referring to God there. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he sees and he hears. Now, does he make a good witness? Well, yeah, he does. There's three of them, so it's not just Peter. So you have in the mouths of two or three witnesses that a fact can be established. And so you have, look, we're eyewitnesses. We didn't hear about it. We were there. I was there. And so now, when you look at that, how do you think Peter would rank his experience with God's word? Okay, I'm getting some questioning looks. It's usually a good hint that it's a lousy question. All right. Let's read again. Actually, let's read a little further because that's where we're going to get into it. So we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, in English, how does that read? His experience adds on to the truth that we know to be true. That is an unfortunate translation. Literally, what it says is this. We have more sure the prophetic word. Okay. 
what does that mean? We have more sure the prophetic word. Where is Peter putting the emphasis here? Is it on God's word or is it on his experience? It's on God's word. And this is an important point. In fact, that's what the rest, the, with the following context. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This idea of dark is murky. So it's fog. You walk into fog. What, what, what's one of the things that you do when you're in fog? You turn on your lights so that you can see. And so the idea here is this. Experience is great. But what is eternal is God's word. What doesn't change is God's word. What is more reliable? It's God's word. You can have several people view the very same event and come away with different perspectives of what occurred. And in fact, we have it in our Bible. I mentioned earlier, when you look at the sign that was above, that was mounted on the cross above Jesus, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do those descriptions of the inscription, are they alike? No, they're not. People grab different aspects from what was written. Does that mean that one is accurate and the other is not? No, they grabbed a part of what would be a composite. And so, again, the idea of experience, number, do we even fully understand our own experiences? Does anybody in here completely understand anything that they have experienced in this life? Why not? Okay, so we don't understand God's sovereignty. We see things here in the horizontal. So is that the idea of, you know, you drop the, the rock in the pond and you've got all kinds of ripples that go out, right? Do we understand all of the ripples that go out from the different events in our life? No. You're limited by your perspective and you have no idea how that is being used in the lives of others. That's why, again, when these people, when the, when the apostles suffered, Paul took a beating in Philippi that he didn't have to take. Paul was a Roman citizen, and Philippi was a Roman colony. In fact, you'll remember that after he, he and Silas were beaten and spent the night in jail, the next day when it became known that they were Roman citizens... Here come the leader. And remember, they tried to just uh, say, hey, listen, turn them loose. Uh-uh. Uh, no, 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 no. You beat us publicly, you come down here and you release us publicly. And they came down with their tail between their legs because they were in danger as a Roman colony of suffering civic penalties from Rome because of what they had done. 
Paul didn't have to take that beating. And in fact, there was another occasion where he said, you know what, look, uh, back when he was in Jerusalem, okay, the, the Roman comes in, he rescues him from the Sanhedrin. All right, we're going to examine him by scourging. Never understood that one. We're going to try to ascertain what the truth is here. We're going to do that by beating you until such time as you tell us what it is that, that we want to know. Why don't you just ask me? I'm telling you right now, you don't have to beat me to do that. But Paul, excuse me, Paul looks at the centurion and says, uh, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh? Well, that changes things a little bit. We can't beat you. We cannot examine you by scourging because you're a citizen and you haven't been rightly tried. Paul took the beating in Philippi. Why? Nobody really knows the answer to that now, do they? Because it was a question that was never asked of him. But when Paul is telling people in Iconium on his way back through, now what happened to Paul there at Iconium? Was it Iconium or Lystra? Paul gets stoned and left for dead. He goes on further past and then what does he do? They turn right around and go right back where he just got persecuted. And what was his message while he was there? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So Paul's not trying to talk to these people on a theoretical level or a hypothetical level. Uh, remember a couple weeks ago? I think I still have an indentation here on my cheekbone from one of the rocks. Being a Christian... It's not a pleasure cruise. There's suffering. In fact, Peter is going to talk about, Paul is going to talk about filling up the afflictions of Christ. And so again, it is, it's about suffering. It's about difficulty. It's about adversity. Eyewitnesses, experiences, those are great. But what's more sure is God's written word because the grass withers, the flower fades, but what? But the word of our God stands forever. And so that is what is important. And so beginning at verse 19, so we have, the, we have more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place. When things are murky, when things are uncertain, God's word brings light. It brings perspective. It brings the truth to things that are unsettled. How long? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, in the morning, there, what, what, is there a star called the morning star? Anybody, well, outside of Jesus, outside of, Je outside of Christ. I'm just talking about normal, secular understanding now. Is there a star called the morning star? It's not the north star. And actually, it's a little bit of a trick question because it's actually not a star. 
but it is the most prominent light in the morning sky, and it is Venus. Venus is called the morning star, and when Venus shows up, what is that an indication of? Dawn's coming soon. That's the idea. When you see the morning star, morning is approaching. When you stay up all night and you're out in the elements, you learn to look for stuff like that. Because it's an idea that it literally is a light at the end of the tunnel, right? It's not an oncoming train. And so, the idea here, the dawning day and the morning star are both references to Christ. So, keep your finger here in 2 Peter, and let's go to Matthew 22. Now, nah, let's, let's do uh, Revelation. In fact, I didn't even put Revelation in there. I cannot believe I didn't do that. So, go to, flip to the right a few pages. And go to Revelation chapter 22. Hopefully a passage that will be relatively familiar since we were just here a few weeks ago. Jesus referring to himself, 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Late, earlier in Revelation, to one of the churches, it was written that, what would Jesus give them if they overcame? I'll give him the morning star. Malachi talks about the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. If you go back over to Matthew, You know what? I transposed Matthew with Revelation. All right, so let's leave that be. So the idea here, Christ is referenced as the dawning day and as the morning star. Now you'll remember we just got done with the book of Revelation, right? Is there a sun in heaven? There's no need for one. Why not? Because the glory of God and the Lamb are its light. And so here you have, and begin because, because heaven is made of basically translucent materials, you have the glory of God shining out from the New Jerusalem in all directions, illuminating everything. And so, and, and again, that go back to the transfiguration. What was happening to Jesus' robe? It's gleaming. His glory is just spreading out everywhere. That is what his word, that's what the prophetic word is likened to. It's a light that illuminates everything that's around it. Verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own 
interpretation. So in English, in our English translation, how does that read? What does that say? Okay, so you're not free to come up with your own meaning for Scripture. Does that make sense? Now, is that true? Yes, that is true. This is talking more about, however, the source, the origin of Scripture, rather than the application. Because look at how he continues on. No matter of prophecy of Scripture is a matter, is, is, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For, because, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So the prophets didn't just make this stuff up. So in other words, the prophets were not following or initiating cleverly devised tales. They, men, were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This idea of moving, Luke uses twice in the book of Acts to talk about a sailing ship that is being blown along by the wind. That idea of being carried along, being borne along, is this idea of being moved. So what it's talking about is the men who wrote the prophetic word weren't coming up with it themselves. They're moved by God. Now, why does that make such a difference? God is the author. Does he use the characteristics of men? Does he use their, I mean, the, can you tell, if, you're, if you knew Peter and you read Peter's two letters, do you think you would look at that and go, hey, you know, it sounds like Peter's sitting here talking to us. Paul writes differently. John writes differently. God will use the personality, but the words are his. Why? Because it's God's word. It's, not, it's his word. It's not the word of a man. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. They're coming up with this on their own. It's not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. 
But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you'll clearly understand it. What was happening in Jeremiah's day? Do you recall? God is speaking through Jeremiah and telling the people, remember, they're under siege. Nebuchadnezzar's outside the gate. Babylon is laying siege to the city. And God is speaking to the people through Jeremiah, listen, give yourselves up. I'm going to deliver the city into his hand. That's reality. But what are all the false teachers, all the false prophets putting forth? Not going to happen. No way, no how. We're going to be delivered. There's not going to be a calamity. We're all going to walk out of here and everything is going to be just fine. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go away. What happens when you give people under a sentence of death that kind of a message? Are they going to pay attention to the danger that they are facing? No. Why should I get right with God? Things are going to carry on just as they always have. So I can keep doing my own thing. I don't need to change. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So again, the idea here is that the people who wrote these different books that are in our Bible, they weren't coming up with it themselves the very words were coming from God through the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here is more sure. It's more sure than any of our experiences. Why would that be? In fact, let me put it to you this way. Is God's word true because I believe it? It's not. It's true whether I believe it or not. It's right whether I believe it or not. So my reaction to this doesn't establish its validity. My reaction to this doesn't establish its truthfulness. That's done by God. That's why his word doesn't return to him void. It doesn't return to him with its work unaccomplished. When God told Ezekiel, 
I'm setting you as a watchman over the city, over these people. When I give you a warning, you are to declare that warning. And if the man hears the warning and he turns, then he's delivered. If he hears your warning and disregards it and dies, he's suffering the consequences for his action. You're innocent because you declared my word. And so when God talks about in Isaiah 55 about his word doesn't, it accomplishes its purpose. God's word is either going to bring admonishment that results in repentance and belief and obedience or it is going to it is going to be rejected and one will continue on their own way at the end of the day that word either delivers him or that word will condemn him either way and God is just as glorified either way Now, why is Peter making such a big deal about this? That's not a rhetorical question. Oh, come on. Why beat that drum? Okay, so Sam's point is it goes all the way back to when Peter's talking about we've got everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's exactly right. If you want to live in a godly way, you need to honor God's word. And by honor, what do I mean? Yeah, we need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to believe it. Then we need to do it. And frankly, then you need to teach it. Because this is how you help others, is with this. And so, here we teach that, you know, God's word is authoritative. And what does that mean? Okay, it has power over us, and shame on all of you if Sam is answering all these questions. All right, come on now. It's authoritative because it is the authority. God's word is what carries the power. God's word is what carries the gravity. That's what we need to be paying mind to, not our own ideas. We also teach that God's word is sufficient, meaning what? Yeah, you don't have to add other stuff to it, Alan. Go for it.
So what Alan is, is, is bringing up here is that when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, it destroyed the Jewish way of life. They no longer had a place to meet with God and to offer their sacrifices. And so they introduced, they get, their, their thing was, uh, how do we worship God now? So we need to come up with another way. And so they came up with a book, and this book was developed over a number of years, and it basically was, it became the traditions, uh, the Talmud. Then you also have the Mishnah, which is basically a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. What happened was, is that God's word got set aside, and now these traditions, the teaching of the rabbis, are what actually carries the weight. Now, who was very good at demonstrating just how true that was in Jesus' day? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, remember his accusation of them is, you are elevating the traditions of men above God's word, and you're setting God's word aside in, in favor of the traditions of men. And so that was absolutely happening in Peter's day. So again, the idea here, and it, again, if you talk to a Jew today, an Orthodox Jew, you will find that they are very familiar with the teachings of the rabbis. They are not very familiar with what the Old Testament actually says. So, Alan's point was, they have substituted in place of God's word, what? Cleverly devised tales. It is so insidious. And by the way, we can do it too. If all of a sudden, if you've got a book that has got somebody's musings on a passage of scripture, but you get to the point where you're not reading the scripture so much, you want to really concentrate on the musings, what's happening? You may or may not be led astray, but you've let loose of what is important to give more credence to something that you have no control over, that you cannot trust as you can trust God's word. Is it something quick?
Oh, yeah. It is. And the reason that he's beating this drum now is because he's fixing to get into chapter 2. And chapter 2 is all about the false teachers. Again, his time is short, and he's pointing back to here. This is what's important. Okay, the comment is, is that when they rebuilt the temple, when they built second temple, that they did find an original scroll. And I do not recall anywhere where it talks about something being recovered from the temple itself. And so I don't, I don't know about that. Okay, so the question is, how did, how was the Old Testament secured and kept secured uh, during the time of the, uh, the Babylonian conquest? And that's a, that's a larger topic, but in short, there were copies, and God was able to uh, keep those copies. So they had the word when they went into captivity. They just didn't have the temple. They still had the, the Torah, and they still had the prophets that had been written at that point. So keep in mind that uh, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, you had the Torah for sure. You probably had the book of Job, but many of the prophets hadn't been written yet. That stuff hadn't been written down. Nobody knows who actually wrote First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Ezra gets put, put up as, as being one of the potential authors. The fact is we don't know for sure. Ezra was post-exilic. And so he lived at the time of Nehemiah, at the time of the second return, at the return from Babylon. So many of the prophets had been written. Uh, several of them would have been written prior to the exile, but some not. All right. We really kind of do need to stop since it's 10.14. But we started late. So let's pray. Father, your word is true. It is accurate in every way. It doesn't speak to absolutely everything in life, but it speaks to everything that we need spoken to so that we can live in a godly fashion. And so, Lord, we... We bow before you as the one who is sovereign, the one who is all-wise, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is holy. And we thank you for your word written in our language. The word that we're looking at this morning has been preached for centuries in English. And we're grateful that we have had it. We're grateful for the effect that it has had on our society, on our culture. 
Father, we pray that there would be a renewing in our country, that there would be an awakening, that people would turn back to your word, that they would give it its rightful place, that they would give you your rightful place as master, as, as redeemer, as king. Father, help us to live in such a way that we demonstrate that ourselves, that when people see us, that they would know that we've been with Jesus, that we are servants of the, of the mighty one. Thank you that history marches to your drum. Thank you that you're coming again, Lord Jesus. You're, you're going to come and you're going to establish your kingdom here on this earth. How we look forward to that day. Lord, help us to be faithful while it is that we're here. In Christ's name, amen.